from the high desert and the great American Southwest. I bid you all good evening, good morning, good afternoon, wherever you may be in the world. Every single inch of it covered one way or the other by this program, Midnight in the Desert. I'm Art Bell. Great to be here. I had a surprise for you tonight, but it got blown by social media. <laughs> That's all right. My guest tonight in a bit is going to be Travis Walton, abductee, not alleged abductee, as it says on Wiki, uh, but abductee, the real deal, folks. Two rules for my show, no bad language, no bad language, and only one call per show. That's the rules. The thank yous are Tellos for the great sound. It is astounding what this Tellos gear does. Keith Rowland, my webmaster, my producer, Heather Wade. Tell you more about her in a moment. All of you, of course, the Bellgab website. Check them out yet. They're mean. Well, they think they're mean. Slightly lovable. Mostly mean. <laughs> you can handle it. Um, people who love our bell. Midnightindesert.com. Uh, all chat sites. And uh, the stream guys, of course, who get it all to you, LV.net, who gets it from here to stream guys, and then Peter Eberhardt, our new our, um, sales guy. And you know, I've been forgetting, um, I've been forgetting Leo, our newsman, who does an incredible job, no question about it. All right, uh, real quick in the news, uh, Trump says Fox was mean to him. Mean, and I thought. They were, too, actually. <laughs> a French search plane is lifting off, looking for more debris near Reunion. Nothing uh, officially spotted as of yet. And then this item. Hi, Art. Email. First, uh, welcome back uh, to the Airwaves podcast, late night radio and all that. Great to hear you again. This photo I took in the winter of 2007... I took it right after it snowed here in Everett, Washington. It was around midnight or so. My back deck looking northwest toward Port Gardner Bay, which is part of Puget Sound. There is a neighbor's house in the background, and there appears to be a ghost image, a pretty awful one, I might add, near the back edge of the deck, and it seems to be looking at me. Now, I didn't see it at the time of the photo, or I, or the photo would not exist. I would have been Heading indoors at a quick pace, locking the doors behind me. Hope you find it of interest. Boy, I sure do, uh, Ron. Thank you very much. It's on artbell.com. If you want to go up and take a look, this thing is creepy. By any measure, one of the better either ghost photographs or creature photographs I've ever seen in my life. So, artbell.com. All right, so in a moment... Travis Walton. I looked him up on Wiki. I've interviewed Travis uh, probably six or ten years ago or something. Uh, Travis, uh, Wiki says, is an American logger who was allegedly, and I scratched that word out, who was abducted by UFO, a UFO, on November 5th, 1975, after working with a logging crew in the Apache uh, National Forest in Arizona, Walton could not be found, but in fact reappeared after a five-day intensive search. The case received mainstream publicity, remains one of the best-known instances of alien abduction. Again, I went right past alleged. 
UFO historian uh, Jerome Clark writes that few abduction reports have generated as much controversy as the Walton case. It was made, you know, into a movie, um, a very, very popular movie called Fire in the Sky. And prior to doing tonight's interview, I again watched Fire in the Sky with my wife, who was utterly freaked out, completely freaked out. And so I imagine she is sitting intently listening to this interview. So what's going to happen is, coming up in a moment, uh, the real McCoy. That's what he is, the real McCoy, Travis Walton. Stay right where you are. These interviews are few and far between. This is Midnight in the Desert, and I'm Art Bell, as usual, raging in the nighttime. Take of that last offered cup or disappear into the potter's ground. Feel free to sniff our packets. Then, with a smile on your face, please call the show at 1 952 225 5278. That's 1 952. Call Art. Good evening, everybody. Here he is uh, from Snowflake, Arizona. Actually, the place he always was, uh, really. Travis Walton. Travis, hi. Good evening. Good evening. It has been, I don't know, six years, ten years, like forever since we have had an opportunity to talk. So it's really an honor to have you back. And I was serious about scratching out that alleged stuff. What happened to you happened, period. That's it. Absolutely. (laughs) I mean, we're at the tipping point. Uh, Back in the day, they used to say anybody who believes in such things is a kook. Now we're actually coming to the point where the debunkers and the skeptics are the kooks. (laughs) Because the definition of a kook is someone who believes things that are at odds with known facts 
and accepted beliefs. Thank you. And that's them, not us. That's right. That that is them, and there is so much to prove it now. Um, and I I really hate taking you back to this story again, but uh, that's what I have to do because they'd crucify me otherwise. Um, are, you're still married, right, uh, to Mike Rogers' sister? Yeah, but we've been separated a number of years, uh, amicably, but uh, definitely living apart. Okay. Um, uh, November 5th, 1975, you know, in some ways, it's like yesterday. You know, it seems, you know, the the emotional impact in particular, but the memories are so fresh, it's hard to believe it's been nearly 40 years. Travis, but, um, had, has this thing defined your life ever since? I mean, I can't imagine that it hasn't. It's kind of defined your life. Yeah, it has. You know, actually, you know, I have to say regrettably that, you know, uh, it's it's something I live with every day. Uh, but uh, the, the negative uh, aspect of it has shifted. And, you know, that might be surprising. I stuck it out here in Snowflake, and it used to be, you know, people would look and whisper <laughs> and point. Yep. But now, you know, the local people come up, shake my hand, and uh, or greet me openly, and they'll say, um, you know, I always supported you. And I'm thinking, well, I wish you'd have spoke up long ago. Back, back but, then. No, <laughs> but it is good, you know, that, that, that almost every time I go out now, I, I get some kind of positive response. And I'll tell you what, we've come a long ways in this town. Oh, yes. How how big a town now is Snowflake? Well, it was about 3,500 then, but um, I don't know, not a whole lot bigger. It might be 5,000. Okay. All right. We, um, we, we the, have added a stoplight. We've added a McDonald's. So oh, you have a stoplight and a McDonald's. Yeah. Wow. So. <laughs> we we celebrated there. here in Brum, Nevada. <laughs> we got our first stoplight and our first McDonald's, so I know how you feel. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. So your crew consisted of Mike Rogers. Um, uh, let's see. Jim Peterson. Jim Peterson, right. Um, Ken, or the, is, is Ken Peterson the, or the Ken Peterson, okay. Kenneth Peterson, right? John Gillette, uh, John Gillette, uh, Dwayne Smith, who always gets confused with my brother Dwayne. It's a different spelling of Dwayne, but and then there was uh, Steve Pierce and Alan Dallas. Okay, um, I'm going to go to the movie for this, and I know the movie probably got an awful lot of stuff wrong, but there's something right. I want to ask about, and that is. Uh, well, you know what? I, I shouldn't ask about that yet. It, tell the story as uh, I suppose Mike might have told it um, that night. Uh, the movie, is it close enough for comfort, or is it far away from what actually occurred? Well, uh, you know, anytime Hollywood tells a real-life story, they've got to simplify and abbreviate and sort of symbolize things because you're telling uh, in 90 minutes something that spanned years. Right. So it, it, some of that is to be expected and is acceptable. I had two brothers, Don and Dwayne, who became one named Dan. Uh, James Garner was uh, several uh, investigators and, and lawmen rolled into one. And they actually reduced the number of the crew from seven to six. And... Um, you know, some of that's acceptable and, you know, understandable. But 
the greatest amount of changes were what happened aboard the craft, and uh, I see no reason for that except commercial conditions. All right, well, we'll, we'll, time, we'll get to that, but all of this crew, you were up there um, uh, cutting and clearing for, I guess, uh, what, the U.S. Forest Service? Yeah, it was a government contract to... Uh, clear out uh, undergrowth, damaged trees and, and diseased trees, and, you know, generally uh, clean up the forest and, and also a lot of uh, fuel reduction, which is, you know, fire reduction strips uh, through the area that makes it easier to fight forest fires that might you know, spring up. Uh, it's hard work, huh? Oh, it's definitely some of the hardest work you can do in a high altitude on steep terrain. And carrying a heavy uh, chainsaw all day, it's, it's, it's definitely not for the uh, faint of heart. Mm-hmm. It's, it's for the young. Uh, and, and by the way, uh, you are quite a bit older than you were then. How old were you at the time? You were 22, I guess? I was 22, and now I'm 62. Oh, my God. Uh, I'm 70, Travis, so there you go. Wow, you're you're over sixty now. Holy mackerel! Incredible. <laughs> I don't feel that. <laughs> oh, I can still outrun my boys. <laughs> I don't feel it either, um, at all. But uh, it happens, and those years go by. So you guys were, uh, you know, it, it started out with you, everybody in the truck going up there and working, uh, and I guess that you were on your way home. It was dark, and uh, if the movie is accurate, somebody saw something in the distance that, and and I guess you were part of this, uh, that uh, they claimed looked at first light like fire. Um, yeah, it was a, a glow, and, you know, we we tried out a d- number of ideas of what it might be, you know. Deer hunters camped out there, a plane crash, you know, a fire in the tree. But uh, nothing was fitting in with what we were seeing. Right. Uh, it was a full glow in the sky, kind of like in the movie, maybe not as reddish, but um, a full glow, right. you know. And the sun had gone down, of course, uh, in the west, so it could not have been the sun. It had to be a fire or, as you mentioned, a crash or something like that. Anyway, uh, it was apparently pretty much directly ahead of uh, where you were headed on that only road you were on to get out of there, right? Right, and... uh closer we got i could see that there was a break in the trees ahead where the light was shining across the road so mike hurry up and get up there and we see what it is because by then you know all of us had noticed it and uh and so we bounced along went on up there i mean it was curious but it wasn't all that alarming at first but burst into the clearing man it was bam it just hit us right between the eyes it was unmistakable Mm -hmm. alan yelled out it's a flying saucer Uh, just oh oh, did he really yeah yeah i didn't know that um but it it obviously looked like one certainly depicted in the movies did the movies have it about right the way it looked no not at all okay Uh, but uh you know it was it's definitely not some little glowing point of light off in the distance like uh, the skeptics tried to say it could have been the planet Jupiter. <laughs> and uh, this was less than 90 feet away, unmistakable metallic disc hovering there. You know, I threw open the door thinking it would just take off before I got 10 steps outside the truck. But the, the closer I got, the, the scareder everybody got. Uh, yeah, they all stayed in the truck, right? Yeah. 
And, in fact, they were screaming bloody murder at you to get the hell back. Yeah, they were describing me in some rather uncomplimentary language that uh, to get back in the truck so we could get the heck away from there. Okay. And, uh, I was scared, too, but I was trying not to show it. So, you know, the closer I got, the slower I went. And uh, I could hear this sound that it was making. It was a bizarre combination of highs and lows. And um, Highs and lows. You mean yeah, uh, a, a pitched a, high, a pitched high low? Pitched cyclic sort of a sound, and then a throbbing, real below bass sort of, of sound. It was a really complex. Uh, I, I, I gave a talk to an engineering school, and they were very interested in the types of sound mm -hmm. uh, that I was hearing because it would give clues about what might be driving this thing. But the closer I got, the scareder I got, and so when I got right up to it, I mean, I was awestruck, too. You know, later on... Um, well, let, let me stump you and ask you, first of all, it's not your average person, Travis, that would get out of the truck and try to run under something like this. The average person would do what the guys in the truck did after, you know, something happened to you. They would take off like a bat out of hell. Uh, you know, I mean, that's scary. So can you remember in your mind... What caused you to get out of the truck and try to get under this thing? Well, that's what I was starting to say, is that Alan and Steve thought to them it looked like I was under outside control, that I was in some kind of trance. But, you know, I think we were all entranced, uh, so to speak. Uh, it was just an incredible, awesome sight, and all the crewmen agree with that. And it was just Wow, and plus the sound, and plus there was something in the air, just this feeling. You know, Mike said it seemed like something was about to happen, and I think that we were sensing uh, this electrical charge that was building. But uh, Oh, yes, humans can feel that. Yeah, and, it, the, you know, what was making the hair rise on the back of your neck wasn't just fear. It was, it was something kind of like... Uh, uh, a, a huge static charge or something. That's but, uh, probably exactly what it was. Uh, you, you can get that same feeling. I've been under half million uh, volt lines, and you can actually get little shocks from touching the wet grass beneath it. And you could feel that in your whole body, kind of like that. Yeah. yeah. And uh, the, plus the vibration, it was subsonic and ultrasonic, uh, you know, they said they could feel it in the vibrating from the metal of the truck, you know. But because, um, you know, Mike had turned the engine off because uh, when they, everybody started exclaiming, he had to lean over to see what everybody was looking at. But um, when I got up to where I was looking up at about a 45-degree angle, it was it was just uh, so astonishing. The, the It was smooth as glass. Uh, over the entire surface, but parts of it were glowing and parts of it were um, metallic. Hmm. And uh, it was giving off this glow at the same time you could see the surroundings reflected in the surface. You know, it's kind of like when you look at a television set and you can see, you know, from the window. So it was, it was reflective, um, not like a mirror, but uh, somewhat reflective? Yeah. And as I was looking up at it, those guys were, you know, pretty much in a panic, screaming at me to get back in the truck. 
and I, I decided to to turn around and, and run, but it suddenly got louder and started to move, and so I just instinctively just jumped for cover, and there was a log uh, in the middle of the clearing, part of this brush pile that was there, and so I jumped down behind it, and then you know immediately you know decided to run back to the truck, but when I stood up, my head and chest at that point became the closest point to that vehicle craft that it had been in that entire time and that's with me I just felt a shock it felt like I'd been physically hit by a truck but it also felt kind of like a, uh, an electrical shock sort of this numbing uh, sort of a paralyzing feeling but uh that was something I achieved just as I blacked out. Okay, let me ask you a question, Travis. Are you on a portable phone? No, I'm not. Okay. I am on a cordless hardwired line. Cordless hardware. Okay, good. Uh, I'm getting an occasional little breakup, but n- nothing big. Nothing big. No, it's fine. Um, so y- you decided at the last minute, the heck with this, I'm I'm going to run. Yeah, and uh, again, different than the movie, right? It didn't show that in the movie. What it showed in the movie was you got thrown by this thing, so that was wrong. That is that is what happened. That is what happened. Oh, it is what happened. I I decided to run, but I didn't (laughs) just standing up and zap. And there was, you know, the way it's depicted in the movie, uh, the guy, the actor, is jerked. And then was thrown back, but right. they kind of dragged that out. It was just a, you know, it's strange because Hollywood normally, you know, wants to put on a light show, and they they really missed an opportunity there because it was <laughs> far more violent than they depicted. It was so violent that it was compared, uh, you know, by the crew that was watching to uh, a grenade or a landmine throwing me through the air. Wow. Some guys said, you know, it threw me 10 feet. Some thought it was 20 feet. But uh, John said that my body fell like a sack of meat, like there were no bones in it. Uh, Mm -hmm. they, They said that no attempt to break my fall or anything to the point where I mean, the violence was so powerful that they immediately started screaming and it killed him. Uh, so, um, yeah, they were convinced you were dead. And, and frankly, uh, even from watching the movie, I, I can understand that they thought this thing had killed you. And, of course, at that point, if the movie is accurate, they said, heck with this, we're getting out of here, and went tearing down some of the rest of that road as fast as they could go, that you know, I nearly wrecked in the truck. You know, I do not blame them. I always want to say that those guys did the right thing at that point. Um, they, what was the point in risking everyone's lives to save somebody they thought was already dead? Mm. So anybody that thinks that was cowardly is just wrong. Uh, Mike, you know, had the safety of the crew, uh, you know, under his responsibility. When they got up the, the the road, they said that they argued about whether it had actually disintegrated or incinerated me. Um, and uh, 
when they were unable to you know, uh, find some deer hunters, uh, you know, with guns to come back, they they decided they would come back. Now in the movie, when Mike said, "This truck's going back. Anybody who doesn't want to can get out and wait here." Nobody volunteered to stand alone in the dark, like in the movie. They all said, no way, we're staying with the truck. <laughs> so they all went back. Okay, so, the oh, man, that's really a deviation. So they every one of them went back. They didn't stand in the dark. As depicted in the movie, they all went back. Well, yeah. Bless their hearts. Um, I give them credit for that. That took courage. Yeah, it sure did. You know, I, like I was telling Steve today... Uh, courage is not the absence of fear. Courage is the is is to keep going in the presence of fear. Yes. Um, well, all right. So we, they, when well, they got back, back there, Kenny Kenny was saying the, the scariest thing to him because they see they saw the craft leaving. Scariest thing to him, he thought would be what my charred body was going to look like laying there. You say they saw it leave? Yeah. As they approached the area, they saw it streak off. Wow. Um. And obviously, they were immediately looking for you, and you were not there anymore. Now, was there any trace left on the ground of either you or the presence of that craft above? Um, well, in long term of ongoing research, there was uh, evidence of the craft having been there. And when the sheriff brought in the tracking dogs from the state prison, mm -hmm. they were unable to find the trail going anywhere beyond where my body fell in the middle of that clearing. Uh -huh. And, you know, before we get further with this story, because people are going to be going, oh, come on, when you get into the details, uh, your entire crew was given a lie detector test. And if I have yes. it right, um, in the first one, Dallas may have been a little unreadable because he was so freaked out, but everybody else passed the lie detector test. And then, moreover, they were later given a second lie detector test, and everybody passed. Yeah. Uh, the second round, Alan Dallas uh, uh, up uh, first because... Obviously, he had walked out on his initial test, but this was the, with the same examiner. And Mike was retested. I uh, took two more tests from the state police wow. lie detector expert, which, um, you know, at the time that the six tests had been passed, the president of the American Polygraph Association said that although a polygraph on a single test is less than 100%, when you have that many people passing tests on the same issue, the odds are over a million to one of there being any error. Okay, Travis, hold on. You can relax for about seven. This is Midnight in the Desert, and I'm Art Bell. Dark Matter News, I'm Leo Ashcraft. NASA's one-ton Curiosity rover landed on Mars three years ago this week. 
As the car-sized rover touched down on the Martian surface, it ushered in a new era of planetary exploration on Mars. But it was also the start of something else. Curiosity's sardonic Twitter alter ego, known as the Sarcastic Rover. The Sarcastic Rover parody Twitter account came into being on August 6, 2012. The night of the famous seven minutes of terror landing that brought curiosity to the Martian surface. Sarcastic Rover's brand of science-minded wit was apparent from the moment it arrived on Twitter. Sarcastic Rover acts like any of us would after being sent to Mars. It's kind of upset, a little lonely, and it wants to make fun of everything. The parody account resonated with people immediately. The account attracted some 7,000 followers during its first night online, according to Jason Philatralt, a screenwriter and the mind behind the Sarcastic Robot. Sarcastic Rover now has about 134,000 followers three years into Curiosity's mission. One of our listeners, Ron, ran across a photo from the winter of 2007 that he says he took right after it snowed there in Everett, Washington. He says it was around midnight or so, and the photo was taken on his back deck, which is looking northwest towards Port Gardner Bay, which is part of the Puget Sound. You can just see the neighbor's house in the background. There appears to be a ghost image near the edge of the deck, and it seems to be looking at Ron. He says he didn't see it at the time the photo was snapped, Instead, Ron says he would be heading indoors at a quick pace and locking the door behind him. Take a look at the backyard ghost sent in from one of our listeners, Ron, at darkmatternews.com or artbell.com. After last night's show on Bigfoot, we've had earthquakes, meteors, asteroids, UFOs, volcanic activity, and something has shaken loose. Earlier today... Young Eric Waters had an experience that will change his life forever. Today, a Boone man trying to enjoy a little bit of time in the North Carolina mountains had a run-in with Sasquatch. His little doggy was able to chase it away. Due to some licensing issues on YouTube, we were not able to get the audio or the video for this. I am going to attempt to reenact today's video. No, Yippee! No, Yippee! No, no! No, no. Oh, okay. Oh, we're safe. That's about it. And while he was breathing heavy and saying, no, Zippy, off to the right seemed to be a humanoid beast, um, a little shorter than normal. Might have been maybe a teenage, younger Sasquatch or Sasquai or Sagamaterier. The Yeti seemed to be crouched and crawling away to the right. Seemed a little shorter than most. Yeah, that's right. Height doesn't matter. This little guy was moving pretty quick for your normal Sasquatch, but hey, maybe he had to go. When nature calls! We enhanced some of the audio using our spectrometer vocalizer by subtracting the first and second tracks. Here's what we found. It continues to haunt me. E may no a acation vey. According to our Pig Latin specialist, he was saying that he was on vacation. Eric's memory of this is corroded and polluted by the horrible smell. He said it was somewhere between a dead, rotting flesh and the sweet, pungent smell of a freshly sprayed skunk. Bigfoot investigators and enthusiasts from all over the area have swarmed to this little North Carolina town. Hopefully we'll find out soon what they have. This is John G. with Dark Matter News.
down to Georgia. He was looking for a soul to steal. He was in a bind because he was way behind and he was willing to make a deal. When he came across this young man sewing on a fiddle and playing it hot, and the devil jumped up on a hickory stump and said, Boy, let me tell you what. I guess you didn't know it, but I'm a fiddle player too. And if you'd care to take a dare, I'll make a bet with you. Now you play pretty good fiddle, boy, but give the devil his due. I bet a fiddle of gold against your soul because I think I'm better than you. To reach Midnight in the Desert via Skype worldwide, if on a computer, please be sure to use a headphone mic and call MITD 51. That's MITD 51. All right, everybody. Um, Travis Walton is here. A very rare interview. And I'm trying to uh, cover as many details as I can and see where the movie separates uh, from the truth and what the truth really is. This is... Uh, a real story, as I mentioned before the break, everybody involved uh, took multiple <laughs> lie detector tests. And uh, so this, you know, it's a real thing. Uh, listen on, I guess, at your own peril if this kind of thing scares you. And uh, it scares well, me. As, as, as of now, uh, there are 16 past tests. I've passed five different tests with three different examiners with extensive years in law enforcement, which is considered the the, the better, uh, more qualified uh, polygraph uh, examiner. Even in the movie, you know, the, the guy came out and said, look, <laughs> the, the truth is, these guys were telling the truth, in my opinion. So Yeah, and, um, you know, the examiners stand by it to this day. All right. Um, so we're going to get back to what happened to you in the craft, but the whole town um, went to buzzing as you were gone, and you were gone for a total of five days. My God, that's a long time. They had dogs out. They had people out combing. They had helicopters up. They looked for you everywhere, and, of course, they began to suspect your crew of your possible, well, murder or yes, something. murder. Right? And, um, yeah. And they became kind of unpopular in that in that small town. Uh, are you still friends with Mike, by the way? Um, I haven't spoken to him in quite some time. Uh, he's kind of, you know, uh, threw up his hands and didn't want to talk about this anymore. But I do uh, understand. How about the rest of them? Um, I'm going to have a couple of them come and speak at my conference, which we'll get to. And uh, I'd, I'd like to get Mike to come, too, but, uh, you know, he's, his health's not what it used to be. I, I do understand. All right, uh, back to the movie for a second. One thing they never explained uh, in the interviewing they were doing, you know, as they thought you might have been murdered, they spoke to Alan Dallas. Now, it was uh, referred in the movie or referenced in the movie, that uh, Dallas eh, was kind of a, uh, I don't know, what words would you use to describe? The black sheep of the crew. <laughs> yeah, he, he had had some trouble with the law, and he was just generally, uh, <clears throat> you know, had a few run-ins with various guys on the crew, and he and I had um, done a little sparring. and um, Yeah, he didn't much like you, I guess, huh? Uh, well, I, there was a little bit of uh, uh, antagonism over some things, you know. It was a, a girl that he had been uh, 
uh, approach that I had been dating. Uh, this was before uh, uh-huh. my wife. But and then um, he and Mike got in a fist fight in the street in front of my house, and so you know it was just his nature. But the day of this incident, he had dropped a tree nearly on me, and that's what led to all this uh, problem with the polygraph. You know, did he have any bad intentions towards? Oh, I me? see. That's why it uh, came out a little screwy. Yeah, because he was uh, pretty sure that they were going to try to pin the murder on him. Well, it looked like they might try pretty hard for a while there. Um, what they never explained, uh, and he, Alan admitted that there had been, um, Alan Dallas admitted there had been an altercation with you. Now, was he referring to the tree? Because, because he had a pretty nasty cut on his hand. And uh, now, they never explained that. They... We get scratched up at work all the time, you know. And after I was returned, the, the doctor examining me found a puncture on my arm. And, you know, it was assumed that happened during my uh, abduction, but it could have easily been, you know, being poked by a, a thorn uh, in the course of a work day, you know. Well, the one on Dallas looked really, in the movie, looked really serious, like, you know, he touched a chainsaw or something. Um, did you have a fight with him, you know? Not with chainsaws. I mean, you know, he nearly dropped the tree on me, and I gave him a, you know, a, a dirty look and uh, said some things under my breath if he could read lips. I, You know, it it wasn't a friendly uh Exchange there, but but not physical. Kind of normal. I mean, a rough bunch of guys. Oh yeah, of course, know. alpha males, all of you. Uh, but was there an actual physical altercation with him? Um, when he tried to spin kick on me, uh, Steve, uh, youngest guy in the crew, laughs about how uh, Alan fell on his behind trying to do that. You know, <laughs> it was it was just um, semi good natured uh, sparring. You know. Okay. All right, so no altercation that would have produced a cut like they showed. No. All right, now back to you, uh, Travis. And um, you were, while the whole town is going nuts and they're searching for you for all these days, you're suddenly in, well, where? Well, I woke up on board the craft. I didn't know where I was at first, but I was in a lot of pain. And... Uh, I was in and out for a while, uh, and when I finally did come to, it was in a foggy, hazy kind of way. I, I, my vision was blurred, and and even double vision, and I, 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 I it even hurt the light, even though it wasn't bright, hurt my eyes, and I, the pain in my head and chest was incredible, and I felt. Um, I felt it was life-threatening, you know. Something was terribly wrong inside. Describe so your I, environment, if you can, when you woke up. Can you? I mean, well, when you looked was, around, what did you see? It was dimly lit, and I could hear the sounds of movement around me. And I could just barely make out the forms of what I thought were doctors. But then my vision cleared, and I could see these aliens standing close. And it just completely freaked me out. I mean, I was already scared about the way I felt, but I just completely lost my mind with fear. Were you, uh, 
describe what you were on, if you can. Uh, were, were you on a slab? I was lying on my back, and I was close enough to the ceiling before I even looked over and saw them. I, I figured I was on some kind of a gurney or a raised operating table, and mm-hmm. I thought, you know, that I'd been hurt somehow and taken to the hospital. Uh-huh. But then when I finally focused on what I thought were medical people, it was these aliens, and I just flipped out. Okay. You know, a lot of people think, oh, I would stay calm. Ask good questions. <laughs> uh, Who thinks that? <laughs> Not me. <laughs> uh, you know, but you have to understand that, you know, the pain I was feeling, the feeling of something mortally wrong inside. Of but course. moreover, the most important feeling was that I felt like I couldn't get enough air. The feeling of suffocation. There's a scene in the movie uh, of a membrane yes. uh, when the actor's laying on the table and aliens are surrounding him, mm-hmm. and he's struggling to scream through this membrane, struggling to breathe through it. That didn't actually happen, but I think in that case, it does a better job of explaining the source of my panic, or at least the, the chief source, that you know that feeling of suffocation combined with the feeling of weakness, like you, you can't move when you need to move quickly. Uh, um, to get away and so you know suddenly realizing where I was gave me a shot of adrenaline enough a burst of strength to actually sort of lash out at them it was you know pretty weak Uh, and it was more of a push than a hit and I rolled away in the opposite direction this device they had lying across my chest fell off and hit the floor, but I uh, just mainly kept my eyes on them as I backed away or stumbled backwards. And when I bumped up against this shelf behind me, I just looked real quick to see what I'd run into. And there was some things there and I just grabbed the biggest thing there and started flailing in their direction. And that stopped their approach. All right, two things to ask. Uh, one, the, the movie depicted a lack of gravity. Uh, you said something fell and hit the floor, so obviously there was some gravity. Yeah, there was gravity. There was no weightlessness. Okay. And uh, is actually, if anything, it might have been slightly heavy gravity. Really? Uh, that, to explain that feeling of weakness, although just the feeling of injury. I really think that whatever happened with that blast of energy from the craft it did so much damage that when I came to at that point whatever efforts had been made to revive me were not complete Hmm. Um, All right, you describe aliens very close to you and of course everybody would like to know forget the movie what did these were these creatures all similar or um, can you describe yeah they were very they were very similar, okay. and you you do have to forget the movie because they changed them. Uh, the, the panic that the people at Paramount had was that uh, these aliens had been in another production immediately prior to uh, uh, the production, uh, the you know filming of Fire in the Sky, right? And they did not want anybody you know seeing something that had been seen before, so they changed their appearance. But they were. They were what's, you know, back in then they didn't have the term grays. But that's what people call these uh, small, hairless, uh, grayish-white beings with huge
huge eyes. You and know? that is what you saw? Yeah. So and, so and that, that part of not, it, uh, actually, um, I mean, there's a classic gray that you just described. Hairless, pretty small generally. Uh, any idea how tall they were? Shorter than four feet, for sure. So small. But, you know, I, I really don't really use the term gray. I don't like that. I think uh, that there's probably a number of similar species that are just being stuck under one name uh, that uh, really are come from really different places. Hmm. Um, and I have, a, you know, a whole line of reasoning that tells me that that's the case. The variations in descriptions that you see uh, and also, there are a number of species of animals on the Earth that look very similar but are completely genetically unrelated. They just look similar because they live in a similar environment. And uh, that's what I think is the case with these... Um, um, Whatever they are? Yeah. So you actually, you pushed one, I guess, pretty hard. Uh, did, yeah. did he go reeling backward or what? Yeah, it was it was softer and lighter than I expected, but it fell back pretty easily. And it was probably partly because it was totally unexpected. I think they were trying to maintain control of me, and it took me you know, many years to figure out that it was probably some kind of neurological impairment due to this blast of energy from that craft that actually worked against their normal method of being able to control humans and keep them in some kind of trance or in an unconscious state. And that's why when they came around and I started flailing at them and they stopped and stared at me that I felt that stare was so excruciating that was my nightmares for months after the incident that that stare made gave me this horrible feeling in my head and in support of that was the EEG that I was given immediately afterwards that showed there was some kind of anomalous pattern that uh, you know I think is consistent with you know some kind of burst of energy hitting me in the head wow. um did they ever get control of you no, they were unable to get control of me, and I was thinking of fighting my way past them when they abruptly turned and left the room. They may have anticipated my move or just given up on... I mean, if the three of them combining their forces couldn't control me, they were going to have to go to Plan B of some kind. Plan B. All right. Can you describe the room you were in? Uh, it was very small, dimly lit, cramped. Uh, not at all like depicted in the movie. It was not organic looking. It was not cluttered. Very featureless metallic uh, surfaces. I saw no writing or symbols, but, you know, they may see in a broader spectrum of light than we do, and I, there may have been something that you apparent. didn't see. Yeah. 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 But anyway, um, they left and went down a passageway to the right. So I went out and went to the left, you know, fearing that they would come back. Of course. Looking for a way out, just in a blind panic to just open a door in my back of my mind, thinking just drop to the ground, be back in the woods. Drop to the ground. 
Um, <laughs> yeah, I'm thinking that it was the <laughs> craft was still in the woods. You know, you that Which that could have been well. acceleration uh, that you were feeling that would make you feel heavier. Uh, at this point, you couldn't even really know if you were still in the atmosphere of the Earth or way past. Yeah, in hindsight, you know, it would have been foolish to get a door open, but that was my goal. <laughs> and so <laughs> I, I was afraid because the passage was so narrow and so cramped and turned so tightly that I couldn't see very far behind me to see if they were chasing me, and I couldn't see very far ahead of me to what was I, you know, coming to. Actually, I, I can see why you would think that. You might even uh, think that you were still hovering not all that far above the forest floor. So, yeah, of course, that makes sense that you would look so for I, a door. I went into this room where there were other doors leading out of it, which later piecing together the floor plan wouldn't have led to the outside, but I thought at that point that was my best bet of escaping this place. Makes sense to me. And so I pushed buttons and, and things, trying to open the door and unsuccessfully. And um, it did cause this um, uh, star pattern projection to move at one point. What do you mean? And what, what star there, pattern? There was a, yeah, this, this room um, was darkened and had points of light. Now, whether it was a planetarium-like projection or some viewing method of where it was actually at in real time, I don't know. But, you know, it was very disorienting to have this pattern move. Isn't that interesting? I don't recall hearing this before. Uh, It might have been, you know, like just a map that was moving. But when, when your sole points of reference are these points of light, it's kind of, I was already unsteady on my feet. Um, so I decided to quit messing with that. And you know, in hindsight, what if it was actually moving where the craft was? You know, good point. Turning it upside down or something could crash it or something. I don't know. All right. But anyway, one quick question before we go on, and that is, you know, from the moment you woke up, Travis, did you have any sense at all of how much time had passed, or whether a lot of time had passed while you no, were? I, I had- no idea. No idea. You know, my initial impression was, since this was the first thing I was remembering, since, you know, turning to run away, I thought it was immediately afterwards. But in hindsight, it could have been a day or two or, you know, who knows how long afterwards. Okay. Uh, and also very far away. Okay. Um What is your sense of the totality of time that you spent on the craft, how long? Well, the conscious memory that I had upon return, it was a very brief period of time. I figured it was less than an hour, but obviously five days and six hours. Everybody leaps to the question, what about time dilation? You travel near the speed of light and time passes more slowly for you. Right. Well, the thing that refutes that was when I told my brother, you know, said something immediately upon being recovered. Something he said about my mom worrying these days. Uh, he could tell that I thought it was still the same night. Wow. And he said, Travis, you've been gone five days. Feel your face. And I had a five-day growth of beard, and that 
is what overturns the time dilation uh, idea. All right, Travis, hold it right there. We've got a quick break. Travis Walton is my guest. I'm Art Bell, and this is Midnight in the Desert. Stay right where you are. Desert and the Great American Southwest. This is Midnight in the Desert, exclusively on the Dark Matter Digital Network. To call the show, dial 1-952-CALL-ART. That's 1-952-225-5278. A rare interview with Travis Walton, abductee, real abductee. This is not lessening anybody else's story. It's just there's so much cooperation for this that uh, I feel very comfortable in saying real abductee. Um, Travis, I get questioned, and by the way, people are asking, what was the movie? My goodness, uh, it is a long time ago. It's called Fire in the Sky, and you can still see it, and we've got updated stuff for you coming up. We'll tell you all about it uh, in a moment. Um, I saw it on television the night before last. It's still showing out there. It sure is. Um, and it was on Netflix last I heard. There you go. Joe wants to know what the device, the medical device you thought it was, uh, what did that look like, the one on you? Well, uh, it was glow, some kind of a greenish glow coming from underneath it. So I don't know whether it was some kind of a treatment device designed to repair the damage that was uh, done internally or if it was something designed to diagnose or look inside. Hmm. Uh, But um, I definitely think my regaining consciousness was unexpected and actually kind of uh, put a kink in their efforts to revive me. All right. You know, for many years I thought that, that, you know, I was taken aboard for experiments or to to torture me, but uh, it was actually probably more about reviving me. Richard asks, did Travis get the feeling that the aliens uh, didn't care whether you lived or died? In other words, did did you feel they were caring for you, about you, or just sort of didn't? Richard's question is related to what I was just saying. At the time, their complete lack of emotion, I uh, interpreted it as hostility. But in total perspective, analyzing what happened, the way it fits in with the medical tests afterwards, and how I was returned and everything, uh, it took me years to realize that it was probably more of an ambulance call than an abduction, that I got myself hurt, and that made it necessary to take me aboard just to 
avoid leaving me there as galactic roadkill. <laughs> um, you said you don't, you didn't feel as though you were oh, more than about an hour in total had had passed on board the craft. Yes. Yeah, uh, a very brief period of time. Of course, in a, in a state of complete hysteria, it seems like forever. But you know, when yeah. you piece together what happened and you know even the waiting periods, uh, um, it was l- less than I thought. You know, it uh, certainly doesn't account for the entire time. But there were little glimmers of memory, and you know the hypnosis reinforces this uh, that there were blocked memories that happened that I'm unable to recollect even after all this time. That other than what you know came out under that first hypnosis session. Um, what did come out under the hypnosis session? What did you find well, out? You know, uh, up to that point, I was so traumatized that I could hardly finish a sentence about it. And I had not really told the entire uh, story of what I had experienced to anyone, including my brother, until that hypnosis. And uh, it was because it was just so traumatic, I'd break down, I could hardly finish a sentence. And so uh, the technique was to separate the fear from the experience. Although there was a great deal of fear in what I was relating, remaining, but it was still enough to where I could tell them what happened. All right, so how did you get from the craft? I mean, we last left you going down a hall or or passageway or something, uh, and then what? Well, uh, my unskilled, I would say, button pushing, trying to open a door, must have attracted some attention. I don't know, maybe coincidentally, uh, this person came in that I took to be a human being from some Earth-based space agency or military uh, um, um, arm of uh, from the Earth. And uh, But I really think now that that wasn't the case. Uh, um he took me out of this craft, and at this point, it was parked. It was inside of this big uh, hangar-like uh, um, structure. It could have been a building somewhere on a military base or somewhere. Really? Or it could have been a, a part of a larger craft. It, it had a sort of a look to the roof and wall that looked sort of like I'd seen in airplane hangars. But it it the light coming from uh, these panels could have been filtered sunlight through a translucent panel, or it might have been um, an artificial uh, natural light sort of light fixture. Okay. I have no idea where it was. I couldn't see out through these windows, or if they were windows. Um, At any point, uh, did any of these creatures uh, communicate? with you in any way, either vocally or telepathically? I think that that excruciating encounter initially with the three of them was an attempt to say something telepathically. And I was curious about why it was so excruciating until I connected to possibly that I was injured and the receiver, so to speak, wasn't operating correctly. Mm -hmm. I was interviewed uh, the same day for this new movie coming up called 701, which refers to the 701 uh, unresolved Blue Book cases. 
this movie is in the works yet. But um, I was interviewed the same day as the school kids from Zimbabwe. And uh, I asked uh, the young lady um, what that felt like when these you know, I don't know if you heard about this, but there were, you know, if everyone heard about this thing where there's like 60 kids at recess in broad daylight, this craft came down, these aliens, like I've described, came out and communicated to them through this stare. And I wanted to know if it was excruciating, like for them, like it was for me. Huh. And they said, no, it was very pleasant. The message wasn't un- unpleasant. It was friendly. And so that convinces me all the more that it was just an attempt with extreme aggressiveness force of the combined force of the three of them trying to get get control of me before i hurt them or uh, actually hurt myself because i think my um unscheduled regaining of consciousness interrupted uh, some life-saving repairs and so um that's the reason for uh, a human-looking person to come in and take me out. Fully human? And I think, uh, apparently, in most ways, there was something odd about the eyes. But, again, I go back to the biology. See, scouts are really fond of saying, this is ridiculous. There are no aliens because everybody reports bipedal, two hands, two legs, uh, you know, a head on top. Right. Oh, they're not going to look anything like that. They're going to be a tentacled octopus. Well, that's ridiculous. If you understand the principles of biology, bilateral, bilateral symmetry is almost, uh, you know, um, throughout all life on Earth, no matter how diverse it is. And um, you have many cases where animals that resemble each other very, very much are completely unrelated just because they are in a similar ecological niche, a certain mm-hmm. similar environment. Sure. Uh, um, These creatures, were, were they wearing helmets, or were they breathing if well, they the were breathing? Well, the human-looking the, the human one, um, what so-called greys, uh, were not wearing anything but coveralls, but the, the human-looking one uh, was wearing a helmet over his head. Huh. And so that was the reason I sort of accepted the fact that he was not responding to my babbling, my screaming, begging questions, you know. Uh, All right, I'm going back to my computer for a second here with a question. Yes, I've got it. Um, Heather would like to know, uh, you may have information, is it true Travis was found to have radiation signatures in his blood that can only be found if a person is exposed to radiation like in space, outside of Earth's atmosphere? Uh, That is an untrue rumor. Um, Unfortunately, that specific test was not performed. Uh, That kind of evidence might have been uh, apparent had they done such a test. Uh, However, the trees nearest where the craft came down do uh, have definite markers of having a huge radiation dose. Wow. And we can get into that in detail, but this this accelerated growth that was generated in these trees has been uh, duplicated in the pine trees. It's a Scots pine uh, tree species near the Chernobyl nuclear accident that's very similar to Ponderosa pine, where this forest uh, was. 
and uh, the radiation uh, at Chernobyl caused an accelerated growth there, just like it did at the clearing. Now, the trees nearest where the craft came down had the greatest accelerated growth, and then the effect uh, faded back into the woods. And um, most interestingly, the most recent discovery was that the accelerated growth was primarily uh, on the side of the tree in the direction of the craft. So in a circle of trees around where the craft came down, the the thickened growth would be on the east, west, south, or north, or whatever side was facing the craft, which completely undercuts any skeptic's idea that there was some growth effect um, that had nothing to do with the craft. This uh, is all new information to me. Um, it's new research, yes. When was this outed? This was discovered in an expedition uh, overseen by Ben Hansen. He was the um, uh, host of the uh, TV series uh, Factor Fake, uh-huh. former FBI agent. He oversaw uh, an expedition back there, and we were able to check uh, that this accelerated growth, which we were aware of from going way back, but we didn't know it was directional until this last year. Uh, when we were able to get a complete cross-section of the trees, um, and uh, this high radiation was detected with Geiger counters mm-hmm. uh, um, on the men's hard hats uh, during the search. And also, um, when I exited the, uh, the truck, I left the door open. Right. And the crewman that was in the open doorway was Ken Peterson. And his right arm, the arm towards the open door, has recently been diagnosed with skin cancer, oh. which again is a um, sign of maybe radiation. Yeah, some high radiation coming at them. Um, so, um, no, the blood tests uh, didn't reveal that, uh, but uh, unfortunately, those kind of tests weren't run at the time. Yes, indeed. Um, since the experience, have you noticed any changes in yourself? psychic abilities, better understanding of yourself or anybody else or life itself. In other words, did it profoundly change you in some way? All of the above, all of the above. But uh, I'd rather not get into that stuff. I, you know, I, I I have tried very hard to stick to things that I can document. Right. And, um, and some things became documentable later, so I was able to talk about them later. Like the radiation, but you, you're, you're trying to avoid the woo-woo factor. Right. I get but that. There's some, definitely some strange things that uh, have come become apparent. All right, let me get, again, um, so you were in this hangar-like place. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm, I want to know how you got back to, I don't know, Earth, Earth. Well, he took me uh, to some other people dressed similarly to him, except they didn't have helmets. And so I thought, well, maybe they can hear me. Maybe they'll answer my questions. So, right. You know, I was a I was a babbling idiot. I was screaming, crying, you know, carrying on. Uh, I was basically out of my mind with fear. But they weren't responding to me. And in a way, you know, it might not have been so much secrecy or you know anything covert or suspicious that, that they wouldn't respond to me. It was just that I was acting like a maniac and they felt that Todd had a reason with 
somebody so out of control was would be futile. Mm-hmm. So uh, they forced me down on this table and rendered me unconscious with some sort of a, a, a gas. And uh, boom, uh, next thing I woke uh, was back on Earth. But where I, where were you when you woke up back on Earth? Where were you? It it showed you at a in the movie at a gas station or something. Or well, I woke up and I was lying face down in the dark. Uh, on a cold pavement but there was a and I looked to see where the light was coming from but it went off uh, but when I looked up I could still see the shiny bottom of this craft hovering there just for an instant before it shot straight up into the air but I think probably quite a bit of time uh, went on between the time I was put unconscious to the time I was uh, lying there on the pavement I could feel that my clothes were still warm, even though the pavement was very cold, the air was very cold. All right, the movie showed you naked as a jaybird. Not true. Not true. Not okay. true. You know, it was dreadful. I mean, they actually filmed a sequence where um, the actor portraying me uh, came upon a couple getting busy in a car. They're naked, and he's naked, and they start screaming, he starts screaming. They said it was so bad that it was mercifully... Uh, deleted from the film, uh, but I guess the the nakedness uh, is a good metaphor for the feeling of that I had uh, uh, in a variety of ways that these beings, uh, the the small ones, could look into me. They could they could they knew what I was thinking. They could see into me. It was an intrusive, invasive kind of feeling. And then in the aftermath, the way the media microscopically analyzed my every move to an absurd extent, every, you know, childish uh, act of bravado or whatever, you know, motorcycle stunts or whatever was just blown out of proportion. And, uh, you know, they were just looking for anything that they could interpret as strange. So, you know, the whole idea of being the bug in the jar began... Uh, on board the craft and continued for months after I was returned. All right, hold it right there. We're gonna we're gonna break. Whew. Travis Walton is my guest. He's an abductee. Been there, done that, and back. I'm Art Bell. Hear the drums that go in tonight And she hears only whispers of some quiet conversation She's coming in 12.30 flight The moonlit wings reflect the stars that guide me toward salvation I stopped an old man along the way Hoping to find some old forgotten words Thank you. 
in the desert is pounding packets your way on the dark matter digital network to call the show please direct your finger digits to dial 1-952-225-5278 that's 1-952-CALL-ART a rare interview with Travis Walton abductee um okay Travis uh here's one for you um you talked to us about the aliens and then what seemed to be more human-like characters. So an obvious question would seem to be, um, do you think that that means that we know all about the aliens, that we are in some way cooperating with them? You got taken because they perhaps thought you were hurt. They didn't want you. They didn't want you to wake up. And when you did, they wanted you the hell out of there. And so... um, those humans that you say you saw may have been, well, who knows, government uh, types. Is that possible? Well, that's possible, and that's what I initially thought. But now, you know, going further into this skeptic's idea that no way would they even be vaguely humanoid, let alone human-looking, is is preposterous uh, when you look at the biology behind it. It's entirely possible that they're not us from the future or us from the past or related to us or that we were seated here by them. It's entirely possible that they uh, just have a particular keener interest in us because of our similarity, which is just coincidental. Hmm. I predict that when we look at life on other worlds, they're not going to be astonished at how bizarre these life forms are. They're going to be amazed at the similarity of forms. Uh, there's, there's, they uncovered a fossil of a marsupial that is built just like a saber-toothed cat. <laughs> it was a predator, and yet biologically completely unrelated, but, but very, very similar because of the niche that it filled in the ecology. We have javelina in the southwest that look like pigs, have tusks and uh, behaviors in so many ways like pigs, and they're not pigs at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, the American pronghorn is not even a true antelope, and it resembles so much a particular African antelope species because our American pronghorn evolved here on the American continent in the presence of the American cheetah, which is now extinct, and because of the similarity in the environment, takes on a similar form and a similar ability. Every animal that winds up living in the water, whether it be a mammal, a bird, or a, or a reptile, or an amphibian, they all come to look very fish-like because the environment shapes the animal. Okay, but clearly you were looking at two different species. I mean, you were looking at yeah. what aliens and at something close to human. Yeah, and I think that they were brought in, uh, summoned, or uh, um, their assistance was gained because of the, A, 
I would be less combative, and they would be able to get some degree of cooperation and get me uh, sedated to the point where they could finish the repairs. And B, uh, they would know more and probably have more equipment and whatnot to deal with the nature of my injuries, Mm -hmm. uh, which is why it took five days. Okay. Dale asks, uh, again, this is from uh, the wormhole, "Do do you still have nightmares about this event? I did for a long time, but that gradually faded away. Now, the dreams that came back later uh, were not so much nightmares, but actually featured the uh, human-type people uh, to a much greater extent, but with a much different uh, emotional feel to it. Fascinating. Um, I haven't kept up on all the other guys uh, who were on your crew, or Mike's crew, um, obviously we're going to get pretty good feel for how you're doing these days, which thankfully is pretty good. How are the other guys doing? Do you do you know? Well, um, come to find out, Alan Dallas uh, had a heart attack and died uh, here a couple of years ago. Oh, I'm sorry. And last year, I found out that Dwayne Smith had also passed away from a heart attack. And, you know, I had had a, quite a bit of difficulty tracking Dwayne Smith down. I had a, a friend who was a former police officer who enlisted the help of a friend who was a private detective, found him. I, I talked to him on the phone, interviewed him. And fortunately, I taped the interview because, you know, he agreed that he would come out and speak with me. But, you know, he had some real problems with his teeth and he wanted to get them fixed before he'd appear on camera. Right. Uh, but he passed away uh, Thanksgiving before last. Wow. Wow. Um, so many are gone is the answer. And yeah. yeah, two of them have gone. Uh, Mike's had some health problems of some strokes and whatnot, but he's he's fought back pretty good. He's back to actually, you know, doing uh, tree work. He does residential tree service now. Um, uh, John Gallette uh, is back in the area locally, and and so is Ken. He moved back into this area. All right. Would you? Um, I I want to plug. Uh, well, you've you've got a documentary, and we're going to talk about that in a moment, and also um, whatever else you've got going on. So there is new information uh, out there that people can get, and we're going to tell them how. What I would, yeah. what I really would like to do is, uh, would you mind answering a few phone calls? Absolutely. Good, good. Travis Walton is my guest. If you want to call us, the public number is area code 952-225-5278. Rare opportunity. 952-225-5278. North America, meaning America and Canada, can get us at MITD. 51 on Skype, MITD51. If you're outside North America or Canada, you can call uh, on Skype using MITD55. That's MITD55. So if you have a question for him, and I can't imagine you don't, pick up the phone or pick up Skype and join us. Travis Walton, Midnight in the Desert.
For Dark Matter News, I'm Leo Ashcraft. The increase in availability of drones is all but certainly to cause an airplane accident, in part because it's difficult to catch people in the act of flying the small unmanned drones. CBS News aviation and safety expert Chelsea Sullenberger said Sunday that we've seen what a six-pound or an eight-pound bird can do to bring down an airplane. She said on Face the Nation, a nod to the flock of the birds that knocked out both of the engines and forced him to land a plane in the Hudson River in 2009. Imagine what a device containing hard parts like batteries and motors can do that might weigh 25 or possibly up to 55 pounds to bring down an airplane. It's not a matter of if it will happen, it's a matter of when it will happen. There's been a dramatic increase in the number of unmanned aircraft flying near commercial planes, and in some cases, pilots have had to alter their courses to avoid a collision. Solenberger said the devices are becoming ubiquitous because they are relatively cheap and easy to procure, but that it allows people to do stupid, reckless, dangerous things with abandon. He says he's encouraged that aviation and the legal authorities have raised the penalties for doing these things, adding that the essential element that's still missing is the certainty of prosecution because it's been difficult to catch them in the act. Well, the Mars rover has been producing quite a few interesting photographs, to say the least, lately. One appears to be a ghostly woman, and another one may indicate an infestation of crabs on Mars. This recent Mars photograph seems to show a giant alien crab. Well, the mysterious object closely resembles the crustacean anyway. It's unknown exactly who found it, but it's really interesting. It does appear alive. It may be a crab-like animal, or it might also be a plant. This object has many arms, and one of them goes to the left of the picture a very long ways. That arm is longer than all the others. Plant or animal, well, it really doesn't matter. The significance of this may be that it might show signs of life on Mars. Take a look at the photos yourself and let us know what you see at darkmatternews.com. It's Friday. That means open line night on Art Bell. Let us know what you think of the stories on Dark Matter News tonight. And remember, you can always submit a tip online at darkmatternews.com. After last night's show on Bigfoot, we've had earthquakes, meteors, asteroids, UFOs, volcanic activity, and something has shaken loose. Bigfoot, Yeti, the Sasquatch, the abominable snowman, whatever you may call it, showed up today in North Carolina. Little Eric and little dog Yippy, they caught it firsthand and on video. The recording is of a Sasquatch mating call war scream or a greeting from some other dimension here it comes it continues to haunt me in the terrifying last few moments of Art Bell's show a final caller came in with a recording a recording that still sends chills down my spine I guess do you want me to end your show with what I would think may be a Bigfoot scream that I heard out there in the woods in southeast Oklahoma I or... wouldn't miss it for the world man go ahead <laughs> and with North Korea rolling their time back 30 minutes you may not even have heard this yet and for those of you following politics Fox News and Facebook will no longer be hosting GOP debates. The WWE has picked up the contract. And after Trump's shrewd remarks during the debate, Rosie O'Donnell fires back with this crazy tweet. It continues to haunt me. This is John G. with Dark Matter News.
the numbers uh, by now, I hope. Um, there is going to be um, an upcoming documentary. In other words, there has been a lot of information since all this happened, since uh, the movie was made. Not everything in the movie was just so. So there's a brand new, I guess brand new, 90-minute documentary called Travis. Um, tell us about it. Well, uh, it's um, produced by On Wings Production. That's O N W I N G E S right. Productions uh, dot com, and um, it interviews a lot of the prominent researchers in the fields. Some who have been active since it happened originally, and some more recent to the scene. But uh, all about your case. Yes, all about my case. It's a 90-minute uh, film. It's won a couple of EBE awards, and uh, it's really a fantastic uh, film, very thorough uh, accounting. Boy, we're getting some interference on this line. I don't know if you can hear it on your end or not. Uh, yeah, I hear it. Uh, you do. We had uh, some uh, sabotage attempt on our local fiber optic uh, node. and. Uh, oh. Oh, that would account for the the little breakup I hear, uh, as well as the yeah. as well as the static. All right. So this Someone documentary went and took a shotgun to various uh, wonderful fiber optic junctions. Wonderful. I bet that's fun to fix. Um, anyway, this documentary. Where can people get it? How how is it obtained? Well, uh, like I said, through onwingsproductions.com or uh, through my website travelswalton.com. Excellent. Um, also, you've got a conference coming up, right? Yeah, and uh, this is the 40th uh, anniversary of the event, and we've got quite a lineup of speakers. Uh, Tracy Torme, who was the original screenwriter on uh, Fast Guy, will be there, and uh, his co-producer on 701 the Movie, uh, James Fox, will also be speaking. Uh, we've got David Childress, uh, Ben Hansen, uh, Lee Spiegel from the Huffington Post, um, UFO um, editor, Paola Harris. Oh, Lynn Katai will be speaking about the Phoenix Lights. And uh, I've got Robert... Uh, uh, um, um, Morning Sky? Uri Arte, uh, Uri Arte and oh, okay. Noe Torres. They wrote a book called 
Cowboys and Aliens. And it, I think it's fascinating to go back to the prehistory of UFOs and show that this is not some kind of a phenomenon exclusive to post-Roswell. Uh, I mean, uh, this goes way back, reports uh, in, in the um, American Southwest. All right, here's a big question. Gilberto wants to know uh, by computer, were you ever debriefed, it's a good question, by any government agency about the abduction experience? I would think they would be interested. You would think they would, and it's very, very curious that I have received <laughs> no interest from any government agency. Now, uh, it was widely uh, suspected for a long time that our chief debunker uh, for many years, Philip Class, was acting as some kind of a covert disinformationist on behalf of some uh, government agency. And um, he harassed the heck out of Mike Rogers, and he off to, you know, discredit it. And this bribe offer is is well documented. It, it was carried by local deputy uh, James Click. And um, you, Art, um, challenged Philip Glass to take a polygraph test on the air. I did. Call. Yes. And you got quite a bit of backlash over that. Well, you have been vindicated. Through the Freedom of Information Act, after Class passed away, his FBI file revealed some very interesting stuff that I wish you had been able to get Philip Class to take a polygraph test because I think he would have flunked it in regards to his covert disinformationist role. Well, I don't think anybody in the audience is surprised that that kind of thing is going on. All right, let's see who we've got. Um, Richard, uh, somewhere out in the world, you're on with uh, Travis. Hi. Good morning, Art. It's Richard from Northern Ireland. Northern Ireland, and, okay. Yeah. And uh, great show as always. And a big shout out to Belgab. And I have a question for Travis. Okay. Uh, you know what the internet's like, Travis? And uh, there was a suggestion a few years ago that perhaps what you stumbled upon was some great government project. And in fact, the whole alien thing was a result of hallucinogens force-fed to you. Is there any truth or any possibility that's the case? No, there's no possibility to that. You know... Uh that was kind of a theory that uh, was put forth because people were desperate to explain it away. And, you know, well, why does he pass a lie detector test? Well, he believes it happened. So he really hallucinated it, and it didn't really happen, but he thinks it did. But, you know, that theory uh, and the transitory psychosis theory and, and, and another one involving hypnosis uh, have no basis because it doesn't explain how seven people can have an identical hallucination. Really? really? All right, uh, let's go also, to... Also, medical yes. tests showed no trace of any drug in my body. Thank you. Scott, uh, you're on the air with uh, Travis. Hi. Hello. Hello. Hi, uh, all right. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, Travis, I have a question for you. Do you think that uh, the spotlight on you, because uh, uh, now you have a... Uh, Celebrity status. Do you think that um, now that the e now that you have a celebrity status, maybe the ETs are uh, kind of backing away from you a little bit? <laughs> uh, I, 
I don't know. Uh, if that were a, a, a security measure, then then okay. But uh, uh, I don't know. You know, here at February 4 last, um, I was driving, uh, leaving a um, MUFON meeting in L.A. I was going uh, see north up the 5 towards the 10 to come back to Arizona. I was with my girlfriend and my son, and we saw a, a giant triangular black craft come low overhead, um, you know, undeniable, <laughs> incredibly close. And I was astonished that you would have something over a, a city the size of L.A. and not have all kinds of reports. Well, we did a little research online. My son found this uh, website called... Um, ufostalker.com and at that exact time and place there were uh, over a dozen r- reports of the same thing so others saw it too I saw one of them Travis a big triangular craft um, Scott anything else well yes um, yeah actually uh, I live over here in Massachusetts actually um, I, had, I, I, I had a sighting myself actually but it was more of a uh, ring of light uh, have either you, Art, or um, Travis uh, heard of uh, like a um, a ring of light that would float above somebody? Because that's actually what I saw uh, above myself. Uh, it came, uh, I don't know, about 10 feet above my vehicle, actually. And it was um, it came really close, and it floated really close, and then it just ascended right up in the sky. I, I was... Um, Okay, well, that, that that would be a big no for me. What about you, Travis? Any rings? I've of heard light? of such reports, but I haven't seen such a thing myself. I'm sure everybody comes to you now with every story. I mean, I, they do with me. Uh, it's it's yeah. you know, once they know that you're open to that kind of thing, they really come to you a lot. Mm-hmm. So let's go to uh, I don't know Yorkton. Is that correct? Saskatchewan, perhaps? Yeah. Yes, absolutely correct. Again, there, Art. Hi. Um. Thanks for taking my call, and hello, uh, Travis. I actually have hello. two questions. Um, I have two questions. First one is, um, do you think that the aliens are here to help us? Because you always hear that there's uh, the negative experiences, but do you think that they're here for the good or the bad is the first question. Well, you know, this is just my opinion, and it mostly speaks to the in, uh, species that I encountered, and I really do not see them as malevolent. Um However, I think that there is something that's, you know, been suggested in science fiction as the prime directive, the non-interference directive, that it's against the rules to overtly infuse any kind of technology because, you know, that's like giving matches to kids, you know. We're just going to use it to hurt ourselves. So it makes sense that they're not going to do it. And I, I can expound on this a little further. You know, the skeptics are fond of saying, if this was real, they'd land on the White House lawn and say, here we are, Mr. President. That's right. But I also posit that with their level of technology so far beyond ours, that they are perfectly capable of doing everything that they're doing here and remain completely undetected. There would be no ufology. There would be no sightings. They could accomplish that, I sure. believe. Sure. So... You have to explain why it's neither extreme. In my view, this these glimpses, which are just uh, barely provable enough to to let this knowledge, this awareness, filter through the population in a way that doesn't have the kind of 
overwhelming disruptive effect that just instant open disclosure would have. Right. Caller? That sounds great. Um, and one more quick question, if I can. Did he, uh, uh, Travis, did you see any more people up there with you, or is it just uh, you? Okay. Uh, well, there were some other human-looking beings, but, you know, like in the movie where there were human cadavers and that's, uh, or artifacts of other people having been there, no, I did not see that. All right, off to Green Bay, Wisconsin. Hello. That's right. Hello, oh, Art. How's it going? It's going okay. Turn your radio or whatever off, please. Yep, we'll do right now. Okay. Got it. All right, yep. proceed. All right. Hi, I have a question for Travis. Um, it's part of cop, uh, pop culture that the uh, aliens, when they abduct you, they uh, stick probes in you. Is mm-hmm. there any truth to that? Um you mean, did it happen to Travis? Yeah, yes. Yeah, okay. did it happen to Travis? Did right. they like, actually penetrate him with any probes? Or did right, right, okay, I, I've got it. Um, they showed in the movie about the most horrible scene anybody could imagine with this needle coming to Travis's trapped eye. Oh, God, that was awful. I'm so glad that didn't happen to you, Travis. Um, any other, anything else? Well, there was an array of instruments there uh, laid out. I had great apprehension about how they might have been used initially, thinking that, you know, some bizarre effects could come out later. But I really think that they were just simply there to try to help. And uh, so... I don't think anything, I have no conscious memory of any probing or anything. I think what was done medically was just to correct a, a terrible accident that I brought on myself by getting too close unexpectedly. Mm-hmm. Got it. Um, all right, let's go to uh, Scott. Hello, Scott, on Skype. You're on the air. Hi, Travis. Um, get I, I, get closer to your computer, sir. You sound like you're in a deep hall somewhere. Okay, can you hear me out? That's better. Okay, uh, Art and Travis, it's great to talk to you both. Um, it's Scott in Vancouver. I'm listening to uh, you on uh, TuneIn Radio. Yes, and, sir. Uh, this is one of the most fantastic stories, obviously, that I've ever heard. Um, you know, my I've, I've heard Travis speak over the years, and I, the only thing I, I – a few people have touched on it. What have you – has time – Woken any memories up that might have been buried? Has has anything come forward that might have been uh, hidden before? Did, what what was did, was there a message? I mean, you hear about these kids in in South Africa that were were it was imparted to them that we have to save the planet. Was there any direct message to you? Mm-hmm. So a few questions kind of combined there, and uh, I'll listen off there. All right, all right, Travis. Well. Um Back about the time I was doing so many interviews for the movie, I started having these memories, little dreams or whatever, glimmers coming through involving the human-looking type of people. And I went to Tracy Torme, the screenwriter on the film, and I asked him, "Uh, do you think that there could be some memories returning? And he said, no. He said, it's probably just, you know, you know, because you're doing all these interviews that it's probably just dreams. <laughs> and so uh, I asked him the same question here recently, and he says, oh, yeah, there was probably memories leaking back through. So he he profoundly changed his opinion. But none of those memories, uh, you know, uh, really constitute any, 
useful information. They were just glimmers of things. It was definitely had a much more positive feeling than the earlier nightmares that I had. You're a very lucky guy because there was so much cooperation. Lie detector tests. I mean, so many people, witnesses, the whole schmear. You had it all. There are other abductees who tell stories, but without that kind of cooperation, do you have any uh, feelings about the whole abduction phenomenon, people who tell these stories? I think there's a whole mix of things going on. It's a, it's a, uh, um, a variety of things, all of the above, actually. You know, some of it is extremely vivid memory. Some of it is delusion. Some of it is misidentified ordinary things. But I believe there's a core reality here of other e- events and sightings and things that have happened. And just because someone is unable to document it doesn't mean it's not true. But, you know, in terms of trying to get the public to become aware that there is a core reality here, that's the reason I stick to documentation. It's not like that's what you have to have, but that's for it to be true, but that's what you need to have in order to bring people along and make them realize we're not alone and this is real. You're right. You dropped a sort of a hint earlier that there have been changes in you that you don't really want to describe, and I jumped and said because of the woo-woo factory factor. Uh, and, it, you know, I, I'm i dying to know what they are. Uh, but All right, I'll, I'll give you what I can document. Really? I didn't okay. want to say anything about the health effects because I couldn't document it, but I went into my employers and got the documentation that I never called in sick one time in the last 39 years. Wow. And so that's wow. unusual. That's unusual. It's so. extremely unusual. Are you kidding? 39 years? Yeah. You, you never called in sick once? No. no so I, if anything, you got a health benefit? Uh, possibly. I mean, it could be a coincidence that I'm healthy. But, uh, you know, I never never uh, missed a day of work except for funerals and things, you know. <sighs> uh, Hazleton, Pennsylvania, your turn with... Uh, uh, Travis Walton, hi. Hi, good to both of you. Very interesting. I missed the very beginning of the show. Where did this happen? Uh, it happened uh, south of uh, Heber Overgard, Arizona. Okay. Uh, up on the Mogollon Rim, over 7,000 feet elevation, up in the Ponderosa Pines of the Sitgreaves National Forest, very near the border to the Apache uh, Reservation. And um, you talked about when they left you out of the craft or whatever it was, you were in some kind of a hangar, is that it? Yeah, apparently, either a hangar or maybe possibly a larger craft. Uh, And how did you get out of that? uh, Well, I was rendered unconscious, but when I woke up, I was returned, so... uh, Obviously, they transported me to uh, a vehicle after I was under conscious and and brought me back. And in a way that really just uh, reinforced my theory that uh, it was with concern for my welfare. I mean, they could have dumped me off on some asteroid or even back in the woods where it happened where I would have froze to death before I got hell. So, but you didn't know the time that was happening right you didn't know when you were being transported you didn't that 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 you you have no no consciousness of that at all right right 
Yeah. Wow. They kept me out. Well, wow. block some memories. I, I do think with the, these little glimmers that have been coming through, that there, at least part of that time I wasn't in a coma or under anesthesia, that part of the time I, there was some kind of interaction, especially with these human-looking beings. Okay. The documentary name again? Uh, is Travis. I didn't name it. That's not my ego playing there. They named it Travis. <laughs> oh, and, uh, you deserve a documentary name. No problem. We'll tell we'll tell everybody how to get it. Stay right there. We're uh, up against break. It'll be a quick one, and we'll be right back. Travis Walton is my guest. His story is uh, always the same. A few new things, but always the same. But you're so hot that I melted I fell right through the cracks And now I'm trying to get back Before the cool done run out I'll be giving it my bestest And nothing's gonna stop me But divine intervention I reckon it's again my turn To win some or learn some Take a walk on the wild side of midnight from the Kingdom of Nye, this is Midnight in the Desert with Art Bell. Please call the show at 1-952-225-5278. That's 1-952-CALL-ART. Well, all right. Travis Walton is my guest. Very unusual to get the opportunity to interview Travis. He's got a new documentary coming out called Travis. And again, uh, I guess you can go to his website and order it. Uh, how much, Travis? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> you don't know? <laughs> I think it's twenty-five. I think it's twenty-five. All right. And um, you you also have a conference coming up called Sky Fire Summit, right? Yes, November fifth, sixth, and seventh uh, in Heber Orgard, the town nearest where it happened, and we are going to have a. Uh, visit to the site on on the anniversary, oh, no and uh, a, a really neat skywatch with some special equipment. How is it uh, dealing with celebrity? Somebody mentioned that earlier, and um, this, of course, is going to be with you all your life. How how have you dealt with it since the incident? Uh, are you well, pa- are you, know, you patient with people, or is it really rough? Are you eating dinner a lot of times? Somebody comes up and wants an autograph, or what have you? Yeah, you just washed your hands and they want to shake your hand. You're a meaty. No, Always, yes. No, actually, I, I have t- total patience for that. I totally understand. You know, one thing that, uh, you know, Dr. Harder, right after it happened, put me on the phone with Betty Hill, and I got some advice from her about that, about not letting it change you. Mm-hmm. And um, I really took that to heart. I've worked very hard at not 
letting it affect me one way or the other. I'm not going to accept the idea that I'm a, a crazy kook or a, 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 a liar. And um, by the same token, I can't accept the idea that I'm some kind of a, a great person. The, 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 what happened was an extraordinary event. That doesn't necessarily make me an extraordinarily person, see? I do, and um, and I do understand what it's like to deal with celebrity. And you, you have to be patient with people because at times they do jump in at the oddest moments. Uh, yeah, it's you know. fortunate I live in a very out-of-the-way place, and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a little bit harder to reach. But when I go out, I try to be gracious with people. And I understand their interest and do my best because that's my mission is to educate people and well on their behalf thank you for that um on skype jacob you were on the air hi good evening good evening. i have a question for travis yes um, if you were to encounter a ufo again how do you think you would react do you think you'd feel the same kind of fear or do you think you might perhaps try a more diplomatic approach this time around yeah, that's a good question. In other words, would I would I uh, do what people say? Oh, I would stay calm and ask good questions. Well, <laughs> you know, the fear that came on had, uh, was a, uh, an accidental conspiracy of circumstances that made it seem far more threatening, which it actually wasn't. Uh, and I think I would handle it better, but I don't know that I would voluntarily be so foolish as to get myself injured again. However, I, it would be great to have some questions answered. But the big question is what I tell anybody, and I have to say, probably not. When, when thinking now of this entire incident, are there things, not that I need to know them, that uh, you have not made public? Yeah, but, you know, like I say, I just try to stick to what I can document and uh, leave it at that, you know, because it's important to, you know, show people that there's a reality here, and I don't want to put anything out there that can be questioned, even though it's as real as any of it. Uh, if I can't prove it, I'm not going to talk about it. I so understand that. Um, hello there. Uh, wherever you are, you're on the air. Uh, turn your device off or down, please. How you doing, Art? It's uh, Grizz on TuneIn Chat. I want to say hi to everybody on TuneIn. Yes, sir. And my question is, my question is, what did the alien smell like? What was the ship? Oh. What did it smell like? No one ever describes that. Right. You're absolutely well, right. Actually, it's a good question. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah, go ahead. Uh, no, a lot of people do have a description of the smell, and uh, that's actually a pretty common question that people wonder about that. But I don't recall the sense of smell. And normally when you have an intense emotional experience, that the smell is very intimately linked with memory. But in my case, I, other than the, feeling very stale and humid, um, uh, it may be that the atmosphere in there was so strange. It, it wasn't appropriate for a human, obviously, because the human-looking guy that came in was wearing a helmet. And uh, unless that was for some other reason, you said but, stale and humid. Uh, yeah. So obviously, it's not like you felt air. Obviously, you were breathing air, but you didn't feel air moving at all. It was just sort of a very dank. Environment. Yeah, very humid, and uh, I was 
consist I was breathing hard time and I just felt like I could not get enough air so I think that either the blast of energy damaged my lungs or maybe mm-hmm. even the neurological part of my brain responsible for breathing or that atmosphere in there was just not right for humans and maybe some of both yeah maybe they got as close as they could get uh chris hello on skype you're on the air hi how you doing very well I, good i was uh calling up thank you for having me on it's an sure. honor to be on um Don, you described, you know, that that on the 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 movie Fire in the Sky, that the craft wasn't what it what it looked like. He said, but I had my own encounter. I'll get into that. But um, the one we did, we had an encounter with the the craft had a huge uh, glass dome on top of it. Um, did you did you happen to notice if there was a huge glass dome? Um, on on top of on top of the crap that you've seen, you know, yeah, you see so many. Dome, you know, there was our, a dome on top. There was a dome on top, but I did not look out from sure. it from the inside. I never got to that part of the craft, but there, it did have a dome on top. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, that was uh, just was wondering. Uh, I um, like I said, I had my own experience, and um, it's fascinating. It's very fascinating. And you said that most of your 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 memories were were hit through re- when you got back through um, hypnosis. Um, well, no, actually, you know, it didn't add to the memories. It just allowed me to finally say them without breaking down. Hmm. What's it like uh, being hypnotized? Is it pretty weird? I mean, are you conscious during it uh, and aware of your surroundings? And is it just that uh, other I other wasn't. memories come flooding back, or what was it like? I didn't really remember uh, huh. when I came out of the trance. Uh, my brother was present, and he told me about certain things that, that I didn't remember. Huh. I, I understand some people do remember, but uh, I didn't. Gotcha. Flagstaff, Arizona, your turn. Hello. Hi, thanks. Sure. Go ahead. Hi, my name's Zach. Uh, I'm from Arizona. Hi, Travis. Up north and like stuff. <laughs> and um, my question for you is that I feel like earlier in what happened to you, a lot of what you were saying was like there was an attack on you by extraterrestrial life. So my question now is that just hearing you earlier in the show, you feel like there's more of an altruistic um, aspect to extraterrestrial life now? Like they weren't trying to hurt you? Well, yeah. You see, I didn't, uh, I interpreted it as an attack. You know, that possibly this blast of energy was even a beam that was fired, even mistakenly, as a defensive move. But now I'm thinking that it was just some kind of a side effect of the propulsion unit that, uh, you know, just jumped to the Earth through me. Uh, Our famous UFO skeptic even wrote a, a paper saying that Pilots who think they see they're being uh, circled by UFOs are actually seeing the result of the huge charges up to half a million volts that actually have been documented to build up in the surface of our or aircraft just passing at high speed through the air. So, you know, maybe some kind of a, uh, an effect like that of this uh, uh, saucer traveling through the air at very high speed or maybe some side effect of the propulsion unit or maybe they were in the process of some agricultural experiment there 
with the trees and uh, some residual energy from that. I, I don't know. I just don't think it was a deliberate weapon. I think that because I unexpectedly closed the distance and got myself hurt, that it made it necessary for them to take me aboard to correct the mistake that I uh, made. So I'm not saying that they were uh, that it was a hostile act at all, as I Art. mistakenly may have thought at first. All right, caller. All right, thanks. <laughs> right, thank you very much. Um, okay, so here's a question from somebody named Big C through the wormhole. Great show. Question to Travis. Was he a skeptic of the existence of ETs, UFOs, that sort of thing, before this happened to you? I mean, did you have any attitude at all about this? No, I I was not that ignorant. I um, really, you know, know, studies have shown that over 60% of the people believe in the reality of this and to the extent, and and the percentage goes up with the educational level. So mm-hmm. it's really dumb people who say this can't be mm-hmm. because uh, we've reached the point now where it's it's a virtual certainty with accepted scientific methods. We have the, the Hubble telescope and uh, Kepler, and, and they've actually been able to uh, fill in the blanks on the Drake equation that the estimation of uh, habitable or life-supporting planets in our galaxy is far greater than they once thought, that virtually every star has about a dozen planets, mm-hmm. and that there's always going to be those middle ones, the Goldilocks rings, that aren't so close that they're overheated or so far out that they're frozen. And uh, life uh, with the right chemicals is going to be inevitable in those places. You're beginning to sound like a scientist. Of course, you've been looking at this now for a while, haven't you? I've been studying it for 39 years, yeah. (laughs) All right, let's, uh, I don't know, it says anonymous, so I don't know where we're going. Hello, you're on the air. Yeah, hi, Art. Hello. Calling from Phoenix, Arizona. Yes, sir. And uh, last year, my wife and I were at the Skyfire Summit in the Hebrew Overgrade area with... uh, hosted by Travis and he had two Navajo Rangers that were speaking at the event mm-hmm. and these guys were super intense I mean we had a conversation my wife and I with one of them outside after he spoke and it, you could it, it, he had federal you know law enforcement training and this guy would look right through you you know a no holds barred kind of guy and I was curious as to how Travis met them in this they ever teamed up together you know with Travis's conviction of his story and these two gentlemen um, it would make a powerful combination to you know go on a a circuit okay Travis well I had the uh, opportunity to speak uh, in Gallup at at a film festival uh, there on the Navajo Reservation and um, spoke to nearly a thousand uh, Native Americans in in the building and they had some amazing stories about things that happened way back in the far reaches of the reservation it's very remote out there and these entities seem to have quite a, an attraction to more remote areas 
this one story I got was of a guy, his grandmother had woven a blanket uh, depicting uh, an encounter with these beings going way back. So, you know, the the oral tradition uh, amongst the tribes, uh, the Zuni, the Navajo, the Hopi, uh, is pretty extensive that this is not a new phenomenon. And that was the reason that I invited them to my conference because that's a perspective that I think is very important and that's the reason I'm having uh, Noe Torres and Ruben uh, Uriarte uh, speak this year on the Cowboys and Aliens topic that this predates the early days, you know, the even uh, you know, the the very you know, first uh, uh, Europeans to come to this area uh, were experiencing and seeing things even then. All right. Harmony, very quickly, somewhere in the world, uh, you're on the air with Travis. Yeah. Hello. Hi, Travis. Hi, Art. Can okay. you hear me? Uh, you're, you're just too loud. Just back away a little bit and uh, uh, tell us where you're calling. Uh, where are you calling from? I'm ringing from New Zealand. New Zealand. From, okay. Yeah, from Nelson, New Zealand. And I had a couple of encounters uh, in the very similar time period as what um, Travis's where I looked on the net and I read some of his story. But I'll tell you the second one first because I think it'll corroborate some of what he's saying. The second one was a visual that we had in 1978. It was a, some sort of a craft that came across the Pacific Ocean from, from the distance, about 100 miles, and it covered 100 miles in about 10 seconds, went directly over our heads, flashing uh, strobe lights, red, white, yellow, and blue. Uh, it, it covered that distance in 10 seconds, not, didn't make a sound, and it was within within a half a mile of us when it went over our heads. There was, and to, there's uh, reports in uh, Ludington, Michigan on the 20, I think the 28th of July that year, 1978. A lot of other people saw it as well, including quite a few people from the Coast Guard and the Sheriff's Department. So you can look at the, the NICAP uh, org website for that. Okay. Anyway, that was a visual. The other one was around the same time in 1975. Um, I was in Los Angeles and I was I was being threatened by a biker, um, and instead of defending myself, I sat down in cross-legged position and closed my eyes, and I got hit by a, a tractor beam or something, and it and it was like a billion volts of electricity knocked me down on the ground and shook me for a minute, um, almost like I was having a seizure. You sure the then, biker didn't hit you, right? Then it, was over. then it was over. Okay, it was over. No, the biker they just stood there with their <laughs> jaws dropped. They couldn't believe what they and they walked away. The, the whole the whole situation just diffused at that point. So well, I've been yeah, a believer that, ever since that, that, that we are not alone. We are not alone. And uh most of the news we hear is BS. Well, you're you're right about that. All right, I'm sorry. We've we've got a break here, so everybody hold tight for a moment. Travis Walton is my guest. This is Midnight in the Desert, raging in the night from the high desert.
can be explored on Midnight in the Desert with Art Bell. If using Skype from your computer, please be sure to use a headset mic and call MITD 51. That's MITD 51. That's the way it's done. If you're outside North America, it's MITD 55. MITD 55. And of course, on Skype, it's free. Travis Walton is here, and uh, here he is once again. Okay, Travis, um, sort of a short time between breaks on this one. So, Nayan, is that correct? Uh, Nayan. Nayan, sorry. Yeah, Close. It, it, my name's actually Nathan. It was a, a made-up video game name. Okay. Where are uh, uh, Where are you? Actually? Appreciate you taking my car, call, by the way, Art. Sure. Me and my brother are uh, big fans. Right. Um, you where? cause us a lot of sleepless nights in a good way, you know. Oh, thank you. Uh, where anyways, are, where uh, are my you? My question was... I can't uh, get that out. Like, do you think... The ETs um, that you saw are kind of like, you know, like a, a uh, like robots or biologically programmed, uh, you know, like you know, like if we see an anthill, we send cameras down there, or you know what I mean? We, do you think they're like a way to communicate a, a bridge? Like if they're like fourth dimensional beings, you know, uh, do you think that's a way they communicate with us? Well, you know, using Occam's razor, uh, I see that uh, no necessity for that. I, I, you know, if if an advanced civilization could create a being that could stand in for an organic being to resemble in every way a living, breathing thing, uh, it would be undetectable. So there would have been no way that I could have uh, seen such a, a, a creation. But I also don't see the necessity of it. I I think with their kind of technology, it's not that big of a leap to come here. Uh, it's just that they're being very circumspect uh, out of, um, you know, uh, respect for our level of development. Uh, what did the ship look like? All right, uh, we'll get to that. Where are you calling from? I want to get to that. Oh, uh, Oklahoma. Oklahoma, all right. So, uh, yes, as best you can, describe, I guess, the the shape. You've sort of already done that, but for him, uh, if you would. Well, a metallic disc uh, with a dome on top, uh, glowing areas uh, with non-glowing areas that are more like uh, um, some kind of a more rigid part of the structure. I I I'm, uh, don't know the nature of why some of it was glowing. It didn't feel hot. I didn't. I was close enough that I think that if it was glowing because of a high temperature, that I would have been able to feel the heat. And I didn't feel heat. Um, would you roughly describe it as a flying saucer? Yes, uh, like two pie pans put lip to lip, kind of angular. But the craft that I was returned from was more rounded, but again, still uh, a disc shape. Um, I'm thinking that something to do with the propulsion requires a generally circular dimension. 
A lot of people are sending in questions on the computer asking if you have had any experience or contact since. That's a very common question, and I always tell them, if I did, I wouldn't tell anybody because I stick to what I can document. I did talk about that giant black triangle because I had two witnesses with me and then went online and found that there was a dozen more. Mm-hmm. I, I think you're doing a wise thing because if you had had another experience and laid that out for everybody, you're absolutely right. It would detract from your credibility, no matter how true it might be. Exactly. So, very, very interesting. But that's the nature of the beast. It is indeed. <laughs> I'm glad you know that. Wilmington, North Carolina. Hello. Hi, Art. This is Gabrielle of Eastern Paranormal. I'll ask my question, and then I'll jump off the air to listen. I just wanted to know Travis's thoughts on God before his abduction versus after his abduction, and that's it. Thank you. Uh, thank you. All right, so did you find God with the aliens? No, I found God prior to that. I believe that if you truly understand infinity in terms of time and distance, both future and past, then God is a certainty. You were... Uh, in I'll leave it at that. Okay, in Snowflake, uh, you were a church-going person, yes? Uh, not, not a regular. I was an irregular, and that kind of put <laughs> me on the edge of uh, this devout community. But uh, I see nothing about the presence of alien beings in this gala- galaxy, in this universe, as in any way contradicting any religious principle. You do understand, um, though, that for some people, that would they be... They see a, it as a contradiction. Yes, they, they, yes. Yeah, I've encountered that in in, in ways that uh, harmed relationships. My son was a uh, girlfriend, uh, was advised to uh, get away from him wow. uh, by the the local Catholic priest uh, brought in a guy that, you know, said his dad is consorting with demons. And it wasn't so long after that that the Vatican came out and said, no, there is absolutely nothing evil about believing that there are beings out there uh, on other um, planets. And so um, people who, uh, you know, say, well, if it's not in the Bible, it doesn't exist, are really pretty small-minded, in my view. They're selling God short. Uh, there's nothing in the Bible about Native Americans, and yet they exist. Mm-hmm. There's nothing in the Bible about Antarctica, but it exists. So, you know, the idea that if it's not in the Bible, it's not true is is a little bit narrow-minded, in my view. Very quickly, uh, Jonathan on Skype. Oh, hi. Hi. Mr. Bell and Mr. Walton, very nice to meet you both. Thank you. Uh, I'm, I'm Matthew. This is Jonathan's brother. All right. Uh I have, I have um, a couple of questions. Real quick. Uh, please explain in very, in very detail what the alien looks like. The grays? Okay. In great detail, like their appendages. Feet, okay. Do they have irises? Their color of the irises? Uh, clothing? Things like that. Okay. Yeah, they did have irises. They they did not have a black obsidian-like eye. I, I speculate that that might be some sort of a sunglass uh sort of eye protective uh, covering similar to sunglasses because every uh, creature that has oversized eyes on 
Earth uh, live in a very dark environment. They're either nocturnal, right. live in a cave, or, or you know, under the sea at great depths. So huge eyes imply low light. So you know, the idea that they would cover it with some sort of a, a dark thing. All right, we're we're at break. So think about it during the break, um, and we'll talk more about what they look like when we come back. Dark Matter News, I'm Leo Ashcraft. Is our universe a fake, an elaborate computer simulation? Philosopher Nick Bostrom, director of the Future of Humanity Institute of Oxford University, describes a fake universe as a richly detailed software simulation of people, including their historical predecessors. He says this fake universe was created by a very technologically advanced civilization. David Wren, sci-fi writer and space scientist, relates the Chinese parable of an emperor dreaming that he was a butterfly, dreaming that he was an emperor. In contemporary versions, Wren said it may be the year 2050, and people are living in a computer simulation of what life was like in the early 21st century. Or it may be billions of years from now, and people are in the simulation of what primitive plants and people were once like. David said he began bemused. The notion that humanity might be living in an artificial reality, a simulated universe, seemed sophomoric, at best science fiction. But speaking with scientists and philosophers on closer to the truth, he says he realizes that the notion that everything humans see and know is a gigantic computer game of sorts, the creation of super smart hackers existing somewhere else is not a joke. Exploring a whole world simulation, he says he discovered, is a deep probe of reality. Check out the video from Closer to the Truth at darkmatternews.com and also artbell.com. Remember yesterday when NASA's Mars Curiosity rover took a photo that really looked like an alien crab monster on the surface of the red planet? Well, now they've gone one better. A new closer photo appears to show a ghost woman on Mars. It really does kind of look like a ghost woman. Take a look at the photos on artbell.com and let us know what you see. The Heart Project in Alaska the subject of many conspiracy theories, is being blamed by some in Moscow for the failure of the wheat crop and the smoke that has been choking the city in recent weeks. The Russian government said it will suspend wheat exports until December because of the severe drought that has hit much of the country. Moscow's tabloid press has even speculated that the United States orchestrated the heat wave in order to favor its own grain exporters by blasting Russia with harmful rays from a research station in Alaska known as HARP. But the paranoia goes beyond the comments of some newspaper editors. Andrei Irishev, the deputy director of the Strategic Culture Foundation, said the real purpose of the high-frequency active oral research project in Alaska is to build a weapon in order to destabilize environmental and agricultural systems in local countries. At the moment, climate weapons may be reaching their target capacity and may be used to provoke droughts, erase crops, and induce various anomalous phenomena in certain countries. These harsh words were published in an article written by Andre. The article has been carried by publications throughout Russia, including International Affairs. 
As far as weather control goes, HARP states on its website that its transmitter and array of 180 antennas has no impact on that part of the atmosphere. They say transmitted energy in the frequency ranges that will be used by HARP is not absorbed in either the ionosphere or the stratosphere, the two levels of the atmosphere that produce the Earth's weather. But Russia isn't alone placing blame on the United States HARP project. Iran has also recently blamed the U.S. HARP project for the recent heat wave permeating the country this summer. Othana Zuck, an Air Force spokesman, said HARP is scheduled to be handed over on August 11th to the University of Alaska. A ceremony for the handover is also scheduled to take place later this month. That agreement allows access for two years, which will provide the university and the Air Force time to negotiate an agreement regarding the transfer of the land. They say the facility has been dormant this summer and don't expect to be operational until next spring because of Alaska's harsh winter. Russia and Italy, on the other hand, don't believe a word of that. I'm Leo Ashcraft for Dark Matter News. I was a highwayman Along the coach roads I did ride Sword and pistol by my side Many a young maid lost her baubles to my trade Many a soldier shed his lifeblood on my blade The masters hung me in the spring of 25 But I am still alive I was a sailor, I was born upon the tide, with the sea I did abide, I sailed a schooner around the Horn of Mexico. In that darkest time, between dusk and dawn, from the high desert, it's Art Bell's Midnight in the Desert. Now, here's Art. Here I am. Uh, Travis Walton is here. Listen to me. I've got an announcement I want to make because I've been, and I've been struggling and struggling and struggling with this. So I've received a communication from a time traveler. I consider this communication to be legitimate. And I've been trying to figure out what in the world to do. He gave me a code word so I would recognize this person when he calls. What I'm going to do is the following. So I, I want everybody to cooperate. You can make your own judgments if you wish. But I think this is the real thing. So I am going to have, when when, when I get it to, done with the show, perhaps in an hour or two, I'm going to send this very long, it's very long email to Keith, and I'm going to have him post it. I'm going to eliminate the code word he gave me so I would recognize him when he calls. Beyond that, I'm going to post it. So those of you over the weekend will have an opportunity at your leisure to read it and make your own decision. I received it yesterday, and I've been really, really, really struggling with um, how to approach this, and I think this is the right way to do it. So... By tomorrow morning, no later than tomorrow morning, and probably tonight, if Keith can do it, he will post this email. It's going to take you a while to read, but I think we have a legitimate source here, just like we've got a legitimate guy on the line right now. 
Travis Walton. Travis, um, again, your documentary, Travis, it's got the newer stuff in it, right? Yes. So if they want to catch up on your real experience, and it is real, whether they like... You know, have you noticed, Travis, that some people react to an experience like yours with anger? Yeah, uh, I've experienced that. And, you know, a sort of a a desperate need to just latch on to anything to help them dismiss it for some reason. That's right. That's exactly right. Uh, Many of my programs have been met with the same kind of anger, and I always... I guess it's fear-based. I'm not really sure. It is fear-based, and and some of the most the blasts uh, that I get every you know year and a half, two years from somebody online. Right. Uh, you know, I I say, look, don't be afraid. It's not going to happen to you. And you would not believe how often that turns them around, and they're apologetic. <laughs> and you know, the 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 extreme reaction is just fear-based. All right, let's go to uh, Thornhill, Ontario, I think it is. Hello. Oh, it's Michael from Toronto, Canada. Okay. I'm sorry, it says Thornhill. <laughs> That's right. I'm right on the border of 10-minute okay. walk All right. away. Okay. I have a question for uh, your guest, Travis, and, and for you, Art, and, and for your whole audience. Sure. I'm with MUFON Canada. I've um, I've had an experience with a UFO and, and very similar to uh, what the crew seen as what was described as streaking away. And, and what I'm asking about is the light. I'm, I'm actually very, very interested in the type of light. I, I don't believe it's normal light. Um, Travis has all, already answered one of my questions when he said that the light was actually shining through the, the, the trees and, and onto the road. I've had an experience and met other people that say, yes, they've seen a bright light, but it did not affect the area. My question is, sir, to both of you and to your audience, has anybody or does anybody know about such a thing where a light is there but does not affect the atmosphere around it? Hmm. Well, I think, um, okay, Travis, for you. Well, you know... It, it, it lit up the area with a very strange sort of a ethereal kind of a glow. It was a very soft light, and uh, but it was still visible from back down the road. Right. Uh, the reason it was washing across the road at that point was because there was a break in the trees. But it was a very strange light that uh, made the, the foliage and surroundings uh, look very odd. All right. The earlier before the break, the caller asked for the best description of the alien creatures that you could give. In other words, hands, legs, digits, fingers, uh, color of eyes, anything you can come up with at all. Well, the hands uh, had a normal number of digits and were, you know, looked like four fingers and a thumb. Uh, extended towards me, they wow. seemed to lack fingernails and creases at the bend points. Now, there is a possibility that that was actually a surgical glove, you know, but that was the way the hands looked to me that were extended towards me. Uh, If they were in the midst of medical-type procedures, Mm -hmm. uh, perhaps they were wearing uh, gloves. Now, as far as the eyes are concerned, now that's the reason I say, you know, 
people that are lumping them together as grays. The ones I saw had a pupil, an iris, and lids, eyelids that blinked. No eyelashes, but um, definitely um, a very large iris, a very large pupil. Even in that dim lighting, uh, the pupil was fairly constricted. Almond shape, as we see depicted? No, there wasn't a huge slant to the eye. But, you know, I, like I said, I really do think a lot of these descriptions are accurate. They just uh, are different beings that just happen to look that way. I think it might be common that uh, either the daytime radiation on the planet they're from is so intense that they're nocturnal or the atmosphere is so thick that not a whole lot mm -hmm. of light reaches during their daylight hours. Right. You know, your story in totality, to me, sounds like you were the accidental abductee. In other words... That's my favorite theory now. <laughs> really? Yeah, you know, Alan and Steve and some of... Uh, you know, I think Kenny, you know, they think it was all a plan, like they were laying for us, but... I don't know. I did something very unexpected. Yes, indeed. Some might say stupid. I mean, you yeah, know, it's a big saucer. See, I say there. I felt like this was my own irrational impulse. They say, well, if they can control you, they can make you think it's your idea. Here, here. I guess they got a point there too. <laughs> Claude, you're on the air with uh, Travis Walton. Well, thank you, Art and uh, Travis. It's uh. <laughs> Great show tonight. Thank I you. can just tell, tell you one thing, Travis, is that uh, if people who have never seen a UFO themselves are going to be deniers. But as for myself, the uh, UFO I saw, or should I say UFOs, two of them, were no more than 50 and six, or 60 feet away from me in my backyard of my house in Gurley, Alabama. So I pretty much believe what you're telling me. Yeah, once you've seen, it changes uh, your life. Simple as that. Yeah. All right. Uh, I, I have a little saying. Uh, for those who have seen them, no more evidence uh, is necessary. <laughs> it's true. For those who have never seen it and don't want to believe, no amount of proof will ever be enough. That's right. That's exactly right. Um, okay, we've got somebody calling named AA on Skype. AA, hello. Hi, Art. Yes. I've got a question for... Uh... Travis. For you and Travis, oh, thank you. Okay. Um, I was wondering if you would have uh, Clyde Lewis on sometime and Travis to you. Um, I was wondering if they spoke to you telepathically. I think they were attempting to do so, and it wasn't working because of the brain injury. Now, the oh. brainwave scan, the EEG I underwent, was at a very, very prestigious uh brain trauma center the Barrows Neurological Institute it's world famous and I was put in under an assumed name which made the test double blind the technician did not know the nature of my injury he was just told to look for injury and he found it so that brainwave uh, pattern that report those uh, scans are going to be reinterpreted uh, uh, with some new uh, neuroscientists and uh, hopefully a follow-up to see if there's um, any remaining 
uh, evidence of that pattern. Okay, wonderful. Thank you both. Right. Thank you very much for the call. Um, let's see. You actually touched one of them, and uh, somebody wants to know, again, through the wormhole, if you can describe what the, their skin felt like. Well, it was really uh, just the back of my arm. It was a kind of a sweeping, sort of knocking them away kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. And they were, uh, it wasn't against their skin, it was against the the chest. Right. And he, he or it fell back very easily. It was much lighter and softer than I expected. Okay. Uh, let's see. You're on the air on the phone line. Uh, don't know where you are, but you're on the air. Montreal, Canada. Okay, excellent. I'm going to ask a quick question. There's been many reports of people who've been abducted who come back in pieces or not at all. That's mm-hmm. my first question. Second question, how have your psychic abilities been enhanced by this contact? Afterwards, have they contacted you again psychically? Mm-hmm. I'll listen off the air. Okay, well, I, I think that we would acknowledge your first statement about people, some of them coming back in pieces or not at all. And I think for the second part of your uh, call, I don't think he's going to answer that, but... uh, You got it. (laughs) I didn't think you were. Uh, On to another call. Hi, you're on the air. Hi, uh, Art? Yes, sir. Okay, yeah. Question for uh, Travis? Right. Can I speak it now? Yes, you can speak it now. He's right here. Yeah, um... When, uh, if you could describe what the the jumpsuits looked like, and if there was any type of identifying patches or anything like that on it, and then secondly, with the human type uh, person you saw, did that look like any type of a terrestrial type of a spacesuit, or was it something that was just something beyond what we have here on Earth? All right. All right. First, uh, my apologies to the previous caller that, you know, I'm just sticking to what I can document. As far as the suits, uh, the um, it was just a sort of a loose, billowy, uh, soft material, uh, a coverall. Uh, I, I wouldn't call it a spacesuit at all. It was just clothing. Um, they were alike. It was uh, orangish-brown under that lighting. That's the way it looked to me. And... Uh, and the human-looking individual, uh, it was, again, much more close-fitting over the, you know, it wasn't like a leotard, but it was closer-fitting, uh, just a, a blue, um, sort of a velour or soft, weaveless sort of a fabric. Hmm. Uh, and no, there were no insignia of rank or you know, uh, origin at all. All right. Uh, Several people wanting to confirm you were taken aboard one craft and um, returned to Earth or returned to the ground, whatever the case may be, on a second craft, in your opinion. Right, yeah, of a different configuration. The more rounded, more polished one is the one that brought me back. And I did see two, possibly three of those in that big hangar-like uh, structure, wow. whether it was a larger craft or a, a building. Um, he was pulling me along pretty rapidly. I was having a lot of trouble just keeping my footing, and he was in quite a bit of hurry. And it might have been for my own benefit that there was it was kind of a medical emergency. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
rather than trying to keep me from seeing too much. Got it. All right, uh, we're coming toward the end. Sushi Dog or somebody like that, you're on Skype and on the air. Hi, Yes, hello. Go ahead. Yeah, uh, this is for Travis. Um, I'm curious about uh, food and drink. Uh, From what I understand, he was gone for five days. That's right. When was the last time he had anything to eat or drink prior to the abduction? And B, has he ever thought about uh, how he was sustained for five days? Awfully good questions. Uh, Travis? Yeah, good question. I've heard it before, um, obviously. <laughs> I've been a lot of years. Um, uh, since I was only conscious for that brief, you know, hysterical period of time, I obviously wasn't sitting down to a meal. However, medical tests did show that there had to have been some kind of nourishment, according to, you know, their indicators, which is the presence of something they call ketones, hmm. which is a sign that you've been breaking down your own body stores right. to stay alive. Uh, and that was absent. But, um, and they would have tested you for dehydration, of course. Yeah, and there was considerable dehydration. So they were either underestimating my fluid requirements or had another reason to minimize that as part of my treatment or something. Huh. Uh, but... Other than being somewhat dehydrated, and the evidence for that was the 10 or 11 pound um, weight loss wow. very quickly recovered uh, just by slaking my thirst, which was pretty uh, uh, intense. My goodness. Um, uh, you know, whatever whatever means of, of, of sustenance, uh, uh, or <laughs> for that matter, using the restroom, uh, you know, I don't have any memory of those that other part. Uh, whether I was in a coma the entire time mm-hmm. or uh, under anesthesia the whole time, I don't know. But probably had at least some conscious period. I don't know if I was fed during that time or not. Uh, but, uh, you know, after this many years, without recalling more of those memories, I really doubt a little ever uh, come back to me. All right. Let's do it quickly. Um, the documentary, simply called Travis, is available on your website, uh, or where else was it? TravisWalton.com or On Wings, and the Wings with a G-E-S on the end, On Wings Productions. And you've got a conference coming up, a conference uh, called Sky Fire Summit. And it's Sky yes, and that's the website, SkyfireSummit.com. Skyfiresummit.com. Okay, so they can... I, I guess get tickets or uh, yeah, join you there. Yeah. Nothing like seeing somebody really in the flesh. Well, Travis, um, it's been a long time since we talked. Thank you so much for coming on the program. Great to be with you again. A great show. I, I love the bumper music. The whole show is great. Thank you, my friend. Good night. Good night. All right. Uh, I'm going to do that. I'm going to get this email that I mentioned posted on the uh, at artbell.com. So don't look for it immediately. I'm going to have to get back there and get it to Keith. It's going to take some doing to get it posted. But I want you to digest this over the weekend. Uh, it's really something, let me tell you, really something. Email from a time traveler, and it's a serious one. Good night, everybody. Have a great weekend. I'm Art Bell. To the world, all of you, have a great one.